This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, first of all, thank you all for being here. Um, it's an absolute honor to be here. Speaking about ultrasound and global health are two of the things that make me happiest, so thank you for being willing to entertain listening to me for the hour. Um, my name is Sally Gralia. I currently hold the position of Director of Medical Student Ultrasound Education at UCSF and San Francisco General Hospital, and it truly is a pleasure to be here today. So briefly, this is what we'll be discussing tonight. I'll give you a little bit of an introduction to who I am and how I ended up doing what I do. I'll really be hopefully introducing POCUS, or point-of-care ultrasound, to many of you who may or may not previously have had experience with ultrasound. I'll give you a bit of a historical context for Liberia, where I did a lot of work after my fellowship training. We can discuss point-of-care ultrasound utility in environments like this, in low-resourced environments. And then a little bit about program development in these contexts as well. And finally, I'll end with cases, so ultrasound cases and how they directed diagnosis and management. And then finally, I'll end. I really appreciate you all sharing a little bit with me about who you are and why you're here. My goals for tonight are really to share my experience with you and give you a brief overview to building programs in environments like this, should you ever be in a situation that's similar, and also really to spread the word of the POCUS potential. Point-of-care ultrasound has massive potential in health and patient care, and so really I anticipate that I'm introducing that to a lot of you tonight. And then finally, for those of you in the crowd for whom it's appropriate, I'm happy to be a resource So if you're looking to shadow someone, or if you need someone on your board that's medically trained, or whatever it is that you need, I'm happy to be a resource, and it really is a pleasure to connect with you. So how is it that I, Sally Gralia, had the honor of being here standing in front of you this evening? Well, I am a UC child. I went to UC Berkeley undergrad, and like many people who find themselves going into global health, I had an experience one summer working in Ethiopia, And the rest is history. After that summer, I went back to Cal, and I knew that I was going to try to be in a lab to do research and sign up for the MCAT, the exam that you have to take to go into medicine. And I've never looked back. Knowing that I wanted to work in low-resourced environments, I applied to the Rural Prime Program at UC Davis. And this Rural Prime Program is a a program meant to get medical students into rural environments, because I knew that in the future I wanted to be in low-resourced settings. This rural prime program is kind of comprehensive with a master's in public health, so I did my MPH between my third and fourth year at Johns Hopkins. And then I came back here to UCSF to do my training in emergency medicine, again, kind of inspired by this idea that I wanted to be a physician who could care for any patient, anytime, anywhere, in whatever environment. Also with that desire, I ended up going to Mass General Hospital to do my ultrasound fellowship, anticipating that ultrasound would get here to the portable device that you could take with you and use in any context, I was motivated to learn more about this imaging modality that didn't require a plug and didn't require an institution behind it. So now seems like the right time to introduce what point-of-care ultrasound actually is. I'm sure many of you are familiar with imaging modalities like X-ray or CT scanners or MRIs, and I'm sure many of you have even had ultrasounds on yourself or on people you love. Point-of-care ultrasound is a little bit different than those things. 
Point-of-care ultrasound is performed and interpreted by the provider caring for the patient at the bedside in real time. And this enables providers to integrate their findings from point-of-care ultrasound into almost their physical exam and direct their diagnosis, their workup, and their management. So this is the example of one of the machines that we use at San Francisco General Hospital in the emergency department. This is a very similar machine, even though they look very different. This is an example of one of the machines that we used in Liberia during the training program that I coordinated. And as I just showed you, this is an example of one of the current handheld ultrasound machines on the market. So these machines are changing, and they're becoming increasingly portable and increasingly accessible to providers no matter where they're working. Point-of-care ultrasound is many things. Point-of-care ultrasound is dynamic, meaning that just like the physical exam, the findings from a point-of-care ultrasound will change as the patient's condition changes. So, for example, that gallstone, if the patient passes their gallstone, the ultrasound will no longer show a gallstone when you're assessing the patient. Ultrasound is thought to be safe. You can use it on pregnant women. You can use it on children without the concern for radiation that other imaging modalities have. It's portable, as I have demonstrated, from that gray machine to this, this small black machine, and even the big black machine. You can wheel it into any patient's room. Point-of-care ultrasound is intended to be focused. So as opposed to saying, I'm going to evaluate this heart and make sure that it's normal, point-of-care ultrasound really seeks to ask specific questions. Is the ejection fraction normal? Yes or no. Is there a pericardial fusion? Yes or no. And so on. And, and for those of us who love POCUS, this makes point-of-care ultrasound truly ideal in every context, from the emergency department to the wards to global health settings. It's important to highlight that point-of-care ultrasound is not several things as well. Point-of-care ultrasound will never be a replacement for a thorough history and physical exam, and it will never be a replacement for that comprehensive radiology-performed ultrasound. And it will certainly never be a biopsy. You can never tell the patient definitively what you're seeing. Perhaps for some things it can lead you barking up the right tree, but it's important to recognize that you don't know definitively what it is. So what is ultrasound? As we all know in this room, all those of you who can hear me, sound is the transfer of mechanical energy from one vibrating source to another through a medium. Ultrasound is basically a frequency above the audible human range. And as you can see in this last point, most point-of-care ultrasound applications use frequencies between 2 and 10 megahertz. Simply stated, this is how bats and dolphins communicate. The ultrasound wave comes out of one source, hits an object far from the source, and bounces back to the source, enabling it to know how far away it is. So here's another diagram. For every ultrasound machine, that's not true anymore. In the traditional ultrasound machine, all ultrasounds had these crystals. These are called piezoelectric crystals, and they're, very, they're kind of magic. They operate as a sender and a receiver. So when you add electricity to an ultrasound probe or machine, it causes those crystals to vibrate. And vibrating those crystals causes a wave to go out from the ultrasound probe. So if I were holding the ultrasound probe here and it goes through my skin down into my body and hits my kidney, the ultrasound wave starts to bounce back to the ultrasound probe, causes those piezoelectric crystals to shake, and then send images to the screen at which you're looking. So this is really the way that you guys are used to seeing ultrasound. 
During that year at Mass General Hospital, I got connected to an organization called PURE, which is point-of-care ultrasound in resource-limited environments. And it's at Mass General that this story really begins. This is Trish Henwood, who's the founder of PURE, who coordinates the training of physicians all over the world in point-of-care ultrasound. Trish is a remarkable human. She's kind, driven, generous, brilliant, and incredibly capable, and I'm lucky to call her a mentor, colleague, and friend. During my fellowship, I had the pleasure of connecting with Trish and working with her in Uganda on a POCUS training. Shortly thereafter, Boston Children's Hospital came to Trish saying that they'd been asked to coordinate a point-of-care ultrasound education program in Liberia, and Trish connected Boston Children's Hospital to me. It was actually over a cup of coffee that Trish offered me the job in Liberia. I said yes immediately, and right after the lunch, I had to look up where Liberia was on a map. So let me give you a little bit of historical context about Liberia. Located on the western coast of Africa, the Republic of Liberia began as a settlement of the American Colonization Society, through which freed and free-born black people began to settle Liberia in 1822. As you can see from the Liberian flag, Liberia was heavily shaped by its roots in American culture, and Liberia declared its independence in 1847. Liberia is absolutely beautiful. It's beautiful in its environment, it's beautiful in its vibrance, in its coastal diet, in its diversity of tribes and culture, and also in its openness. Liberia is absolutely beautiful. In its heyday, Liberia had a bustling economy. This is Hotel Ducor in the 1970s. It was actually built in the 1960s. And the Ducor is located at the highest point in Liberia. It was the first international class hotel in Liberia. And for years, it was one of the few five-star hotels on the continent of Africa. As you can imagine, this was a destination for dignitaries who were visiting for conferences. And it was a getaway site for Liberians who could afford it. But this is that same hotel today. And this is one of the ground floors. So what happened? As many countries have experienced and endured, between 1980 and 2003, Liberia endured 23 years of instability, 14 years of violence, and two different civil wars. As you might imagine, many Liberians with means and connections outside the country fled and relocated outside of Liberia during that time. Shortly after the conflict ended, in 2006, this is one of the figures of how many physicians there were for the population of almost 4 million people. That's roughly equivalent to about 76,000 patients per physician. And not to mention the hospitals, the clinics, and the equipment that were destroyed during those years. What was once a well-fortified, high-resource care system was decimated. And then, March 30th, 2014 happened. This was the day that Liberia confirmed its first two cases of Ebola in the country. The 2014-2016 Ebola outbreak in Liberia, or in West Africa, began and spread to urban areas and crossed borders within weeks. It became a global epidemic within months. This was a figure from relatively early in the outbreak, 
And as you can see, Liberia had the highest incidence of cases and also the highest associated mortality rate being just here. Other neighboring countries had similar cases, but very different death tolls. And part of that, no doubt, can be attributed to the lack of the healthcare infrastructure. As of May 2015, 0.1% of Liberia's entire population had died due to Ebola, as compared with 8% of its healthcare workforce, including doctors, nurses, and midwives. According to one report, this translated into a 10% reduction in doctors in Liberia and an 8% reduction in nurses and midwives. So you can imagine that in a country that already had a weakened healthcare system and added a further insult to human resources and expertise, POCUS can be highly effective. It was in this context that I was asked to take a year-long full-time position leading the country's first point-of-care ultrasound training. So I hope that you can already tell that I love point-of-care ultrasound. I use point-of-care ultrasound in the emergency department as I'm taking care of most of my patients. And point-of-care ultrasound makes sense in a, a relatively high-resource environment like this at UCSF and at San Francisco General, but it makes even more sense in a low-resource setting like Liberia, a country without access to other reliable imaging modalities like X-ray, CT, or MRI, or the radiologists and the specialists who'd be able to interpret those studies. Point-of-care ultrasound makes a lot of sense. This is JFK Hospital, the John F. Kennedy Hospital in Monrovia, Liberia. This is the National Academic Tertiary Teaching Hospital for the country. At JFK, at least at the time, clinicians and patients sometimes had access to x-ray. If the tech was physically present in the hospital, if the patient and the family could afford it, if the patient was stable to be transported for x-ray, if the patient was physically on the first floor, because I have no idea why the machine could not make it to the second floor despite a ramp, and if there was power. At the time, there was no CT scan at the hospital. That is no longer true. And at the time, there was one MRI in the country that was eight hours away by road and inaccessible during the rainy months. The use of point-of-care ultrasound by the physicians caring for the patients at the bedside enabled providers to make diagnoses and perform ultrasound-guided procedures safely at the bedside in real time. My job that year was to build an expertise among an interdisciplinary group of resident physicians, training in various specialties, including pediatrics, internal medicine, surgery, family medicine, and OB-GYN. The goal of that program was not only to train these 12 physicians to be experts in performing, interpreting, and integrating point-of-care ultrasound, but really to train the trainer, creating a cohort of Liberian expertise who could go on to train their colleagues. So this is Dr. Bartekwa teaching in internal medicine. This is Dr. Richards giving a training session to the pediatrics department. This is Dr. Jala teaching one of his faculty members how to use point-of-care ultrasound. So let's speak a little bit about starting a program like this in an environment like this. I learned a lot through the years, and the first thing I learned was that mentorship is absolutely crucial. 
This is Dr. Michelle Nishirenko, another exceptional human, a dear mentor, colleague, and friend. As the Director of Global Health at Boston Children's Hospital, she was my supervisor in my role as the Liberia College of Physicians' first ultrasound education director. The funding for this program came through something called the Health Workforce Program, which was dedicated to rebuild the healthcare workforce in Liberia. And her mentorship was absolutely invaluable. The other thing that I learned is that the relationship, the existing relationships in these places are also invaluable. Michelle's relationship with all of the chairs, the administrators, the minister of health, the head of JFK Hospital was invaluable to get the buy-in to make this program happen. This is Dr. Don, who is then the Minister of Health. And Dr. Don was incredibly excited about the idea of physicians performing point-of-care ultrasounds at the bedside to aid in the diagnosis and management of patients. These are some lovely photos of some of the lovely chairs and, and head of departments who also had to have the buy-in into POCUS training. No matter what, this education was going to take time away from their residence, energies, and time elsewhere. I was just one human during this year, and there were five different departments that I was meant to educate throughout this year, which was a bit tricky. And so we came up with what I think was relatively thoughtful integration. We wanted the program to be visible for, to all the departments. We wanted me to be a resource accessible to all of the departments, but we certainly didn't want to step on anyone's toes. We couldn't have this on one day as opposed to another because some of the residents wouldn't be able to come or would be rotating elsewhere. And so the way it happened is that I ended working with pediatrics on Mondays, family medicine on Tuesdays, internal medicine on Wednesdays, surgery on Thursdays, and ob on Fridays. We were very thoughtful about our integration. And all of the education that I had for this cohort of 12 residents was outside of their day's schedule so that they would never be expected to miss their other residency obligations. In that, we had to be very mindful about equipment in order to have a successful program. Fortunately, before my time, there had been another grant through which Dr. Nishirenko obtained several ultrasound machines. So all of the departments actually had this type of ultrasound machine. I was responsible for all of the equipment from the chargers to actually doing inventory to figuring out what other machines existed in the hospital and who was using them and why or why not. We were responsible for thinking thoughtfully about how these machines would get around. I'm sure many of you have been in contexts where there are resources, but they're not available to the people who need them when they need them. So we purchased this machine on the bottom left side of your screen to make sure that our machines wouldn't go anywhere, but they would always be accessible to the residents when they needed them. Then I was left, having just finished residency and fellowship, to really create standards for this program. And to our credit, Dr. Nishirenko had the highest standards, and so I had to go back and draw heavily from ASEP, or the American College of Emergency Physicians, ultrasound standard reporting guidelines, their policy statements on what emergency ultrasound was appropriate to be used for, and look at what we should even be looking at. I drew heavily from the educational giants before me. This is the EM model of the clinical practice of emergency medicine. And obviously, I wasn't even working with emergency medicine trainees. But it was important that diagnostic ultrasound and procedural ultrasound was a part of that model. 
I was trying to adhere to the highest possible rigor that existed for ultrasound training because I wanted Liberia to be a model and a role model for others. The Emergency Medicine Milestone Project is also um, text that we have in emergency medicine that outlines the expectation for residents. Residents not only, as you might see here under a level four competency, residents in emergency medicine not only have to finish 150 ultrasounds before they graduate, but they also have to submit 25 reviewed and, and QA'd or quality assurance studies throughout their residency. And I made my residents do the same. I drew heavily from my time here at UCSF to use the appropriate protocols to make sure that they were thorough and, and appropriate. I drew heavily from my fellowship director at Mass General Hospital, and he supplied me with many different resources from which I basically based this fellowship training program in Liberia. This is something called an OSCE, an Observed Structured Clinical Exam. And OSCEs are really neat ways to assess residents' capabilities. It's not just a written exam where they might know how to give you the information you want, but it's a way to observe them and make sure that they have the skill that you're trying to pass on to them. And then finally, Pure continued and continues to support me in the program. This is a document that a resident might fill out. So say they were doing a cardiac study. They could click their findings, and then the thing all the way over on the far right was mine. When I did my QA of their studies, I would say it was either a TLS, a technically limited study, a TP, a true positive, a TN, a true negative, or a FP, false positive, or an FN, a false negative. And I made my residents submit 25 in each application until they were incredibly competent and able. But not only did this have to be comprehensive for what I knew to be the standard in the United States, this had to be appropriately tailored to their environment. I reached out to mentors that I had worked with in Peru to see what is a standard approach to a point-of-care ultrasound of the liver. And he responded to me, that's not a thing. And I responded to him, it has to be. And so I came up with a protocol for my residents to look at the liver, and you'll see why a little later. One of the things that I think contributed to our program's success is we made it desirable and competitive among the residents. So all of the residents had to fill out an application to apply to the program, and there were only two or three uh, spots per residency program. Also, we had to make sure that there was a deliverable. Dr. Don, the Minister of Health, had to see that we had met our expectations and we were meeting the program's expectations. So I put together something we called the Ultrasound Track Manual. The program was not called a fellowship, and again, quite intentionally so. This was not intended to step on any toes, and at the time, Liberia didn't have fellowship training programs in country. We didn't want to mess that up, so we called it the ultrasound track, something different, but not something official. And in that ultrasound track manual, basically I had a weekly outline of all the curriculum, what the lecture would cover, what the homework was from the previous week, and what the homework was for the following week accompanied by readings, maybe sometime educational videos, really expecting these residents to work every week on their point-of-care ultrasound. And then finally, this had to be measurable. At the end of that year, I have many Excel sheets. And those Excel sheets tell me all of the studies that every resident submitted and how they did, if they were false positives, or if they were true positives, or if they were true negatives. Don't get me wrong, as you might imagine, in a place post-Ebola with limited access to kind of 
hygienic cleaning material in the hospital, there are many, many challenges. Two of the biggest challenges from that program in my mind were funding, thinking about the longevity of a program is thinking about its longevity of funding. This program, I hope you can see there, was funded by the World Bank. It was called the Health Workforce Program. So funding will always be a challenge. And similarly, sustainability. I think this program was a raging success for those 12 residents. Those 12 residents were truly capable brilliant, wonderful driven, all fabulous humans, and they were all very good and excited and capable educators, which really was the goal, to create a local expertise, the opposite of brain drain, and excite people to come to JFK Hospital. But in sustainability, there has to be someone who takes the reins, and unfortunately this program doesn't have that yet. Okay, so enough about kind of program development. Let's get into the bread and butter, the point-of-care ultrasound. So when I tell people that I trained in point-of-care ultrasound, the most common response I get is, oh yeah, pregnant women, right? As many of you know, um, from either the perspective of your own pregnancy or the excitement of another family member being pregnant, of course, point-of-care ultrasound and ultrasound in general is used to assess those pregnancies. But in emergency medicine, OB, or obstetrics, ultrasound is a relatively small portion of what we do. The routine ultrasounds that women get during their pregnancy are actually not even within the scope of point-of-care ultrasound. Point-of-care ultrasound is really an at-the-bedside test. So instead, on a clinical shift when I'm in the emergency department, any patient that I have that comes in with chest pain, shortness of breath, leg swelling, or a variety of other cardiovascular complaints... I might do a point-of-care ultrasound of their heart. So for those of you who might not have seen a point-of-care ultrasound of the heart before, this is called the parasternal long view. This is the right ventricle. This over here is the left ventricle. This is the left atrium. This is the mitral valve through which the left atrium empties into the left ventricle. This is the aortic valve. And this is the aorta. This is the descending thoracic aorta. Cardiac is certainly a very common application that we use in the emergency department. Alternatively, you might also be familiar with blood clots being diagnosed on ultrasound. So what this shows here, this is the patient's right lower extremity. This is the femoral artery, the deep femoral artery, and the femoral vein here that's being completely squashed as the provider applies pressure. That tells the provider at the bedside that that patient does not have a DVT or a deep venous thrombosis. So let me share with you a few of the cases that we have used point-of-care ultrasound for in the environments in which I've worked. This first case. Ultrasound is commonly used in the assessment of traumatic patients. So this was a 17-year-old male who presented after a motorbike accident. They were unable to obtain a blood pressure in the field, and the patient had cool extremities to touch. He had abrasions to his shoulder, but no obvious external bleeding, no obvious long bone fractures or chest wall trauma. So I realize that many of you probably have not seen a lot of ultrasound images. So this is a normal right upper quadrant. This is all liver tissue here, and it has kind of an echogenicity. Those are the words that we use when we talk about ultrasound. This has echogenicity. And do you appreciate that this right here is bright? That's bright white. We call that hyperechoic in ultrasound. 
This here is also bright white. That would be hyperechoic as well. And then you'll probably appreciate that just deep to that, back here, this is all black or anechoic without echogenicity. So this is the patient's liver. This is the patient's diaphragm, that big bright white line that moves as the patient breathes. That's the patient's diaphragm. This is the patient's spine, and there's actually a kidney here. That's the patient's right kidney. When we're doing this in the setting of trauma, we're looking for evidence of internal bleeding. Blood shows up as black on ultrasound. So this was that young man's ultrasound. I hope you can appreciate here that this is the liver, this is the right kidney, these are probably loops of bowel, but you see all the black that's sneaking in between those structures. All of that is blood from his internal bleeding. This again is a normal left upper quadrant, so this is now the spleen. The kidney's tucked right there. The diaphragm is just here. This is some bowel showing up as bright white down here and causing some shadowing. And this again is that young man's left upper quadrant. So this again is his diaphragm as he breathes. This is actually the vertebral body, the bones along the back. This is his spleen. This is his kidney. And then can you appreciate these little black triangles sneaking in on the right side of your screen? That's blood kind of sneaking around the, the spleen tip. Just for fun, there are ribs that overlie some of the belly. And so what's happening here is that this is a rib very close to the ultrasound probe just underneath the skin surface. And you're getting a big shadow right from that rib. So in this study, which is called the FAST, we're looking at the abdomen to look for evidence of bleeding to know if this patient needs to go to the operating room for rapid intervention of some injury inside the abdomen. We've looked in the right upper quadrant, we've looked in the left upper quadrant, and we're, next we look in the pelvis. So this is actually, fluid shows up black. So this is actually the bladder, which is full of urine. And so this, again, is a normal pelvic ultrasound in the setting of trauma. And this patient, I hope you can appreciate that all of this fluid here, none of that belongs there. He shouldn't have all that free fluid in his belly. So based on this ultrasound, that 17-year-old male who had no recordable blood pressure, he went straight to the OR with surgery. They did what's called an exploratory laparotomy, where they go through the the abdomen. They generally run the bowel. I'm not a surgeon, so I don't know exactly what they do, but my med school days remind me that they investigate all of the large organs in the abdomen, and they run the bowel looking for evidence of injury. He was noted to have a splenic rupture. They took out his spleen, and one week later, he was discharged from the hospital. So trauma is a really common setting for point-of-care ultrasound to be used, especially at San Francisco General, which is a level one trauma center. This is another case. This is an incredible case. So this is a 55-year-old gentleman with a history of high blood pressure who presented to the emergency department with really severe chest pain radiating or moving to his back. He was noted to be diaphoretic or very sweaty. He had increased work of breathing and was noted to be clutching his chest. So the wonderful residents with whom I worked, of course, did an ultrasound because he was having chest pain. And they saw this. 
So I hate to play mean tricks on, on you. I'm very sorry. But this is actually the same view as that previous view I showed you. This is a patient's heart. Obviously, it's not a video. It's a still image. And this is the patient's right ventricle. The orientation on this image is actually switched, and that's why it looks like the reverse. But this is the patient's right ventricle. This is the patient's left ventricle. The left atrium is here. And remember, the left atrium opens into the left ventricle, and then the left ventricle pumps through the aorta to the rest of the heart. What this is showing is that that measurement across that aorta is 4.87 centimeters. And normal is less than four. So he was noted to have a wide aorta on his parasternal long view. And then the fabulous resident physicians I was working with looked, I believe that this is his aortic arch. So the heart sits here, the aorta comes out of the left ventricle and then goes down the back of the thorax or the chest and goes through the belly and then splits into different vessels. And what this is showing is that this should just be solid black. This should just be blood-filled aorta. And I hope you can appreciate that kind of hyperechoic linear finding through the center of the aorta. That's not good. And then the residents went to the patient's belly. So they could have made this image better by decreasing the depth. This is at 19 centimeters of depth on this screen. And as you can see, we don't really need any of this space here. So they could have made this more shallow. But what you're looking at is this is kind of the edge of the liver here. And this is the patient's aorta. Again, I hope you appreciate that hyperechoic linear finding through the center of the aorta. That should not be there. And then finally, this is a video. So this is now in a longitudinal orientation with the indicator, which we really haven't talked about, but the indicator is here, pointing towards the patient's head. And what you're looking at is you're looking at that aorta running through the abdomen. And I hope, again, you can appreciate this hyperechoic finding that's kind of changing with the heartbeat. I know that's very hard to see, but I hope you can appreciate this hyperechoic line running through this anechoic or black filled tubular structure. So this gentleman had an aortic dissection, which is while the aorta starts to dissect, the wall starts to dissect from itself. And this condition has a high mortality and morbidity no matter where in the world you are. But based on this ultrasound alone, this gentleman was diagnosed with an aortic dissection, and his family came together, pooled together the means to fund a trip to Ghana where he had definitive surgical management, and he survived. He walked into follow-up clinic in Liberia, and the providers were delighted to see him. So those cases are actually cases that you might find here in the United States. Those are cases that I might have tomorrow, heaven forbid, on my shift. But these are cases that are a little bit more specific to low-resource environments. So the first case... This was a 30-year-old female who had had two previous pregnancies that she carried to term and was now three weeks after a normal standard vaginal delivery. She was presenting to the emergency department, and this was actually in South Africa, in respiratory distress, and her husband told us that she'd just been increasingly short of breath. She was having orthopnea, meaning she couldn't lay flat at night. She had weight gain, and both of her legs were very, very swollen. She couldn't provide much history, but her husband certainly could. 
So going back to that image, this is a normal parasternal long. So this is the right ventricle, this is the left ventricle, this is the left atrium, left atrium through the mitral valve into the left ventricle, through the aortic valve, out to the rest of the body. And this is normal. I hope you can appreciate how hard that heart is to work. It's working hard, right? It's participating. The anterior leaflet of this mitral valve here is hitting the septum with every beat. This was that young lady's cardiac ultrasound. And I think you can appreciate here that this heart is not participating as fully. The wall is very thin. These little valves are barely opening. And her heart is really not causing a lot of forward momentum. This is something called the parasternal short view, where you look at the heart like a slice of toast out of a loaf of bread. This is something called the apical forechamber, where now you're looking at the heart from the bottom of the heart, so from the apex, the tip of the ventricles. And this is something called the subxiphoid view. What this woman had is peripartum cardiomyopathy. This is something that maybe one day I'll do it. Maybe one day I'll get a PhD in this condition and try to figure out why it so disproportionately affects women in other countries, because it's awful. It's the development of heart failure toward the end of pregnancy or within five months of delivery, obviously with the absence of another cause. And the left ventricular systolic function, meaning how well the heart pumps, is less than 45%, also with the finding of dilatation of the heart. The rates completely range, and the cause remains unknown, but the reality is, touch wood, I don't know that I've ever had a patient in the United States with this awful condition. In South Africa, at least at the time in the hospital in which I was working, you're not able to put a breathing tube in for these patients who have a not known to be reversible cause. So we gave her diuretics, trying to help her urinate off all the fluid that was making it hard for her to breathe. And we tried to treat her with non-invasive breathing, to put a mask over her face and try to help her through this. But unfortunately, she died in the recess bay with her husband standing there and likely secondary to this condition that no one knows why she got. Another case with a more uplifting story. Sorry about that. This was an 11-year-old male who presented in Liberia. Um, He had very nonspecific complaints of fever and fatigue, and on physical exam, one of the pediatrics residents felt that he had kind of lumps in his abdomen. So, of course, we ultrasounded it. And I hope you can appreciate here that this is the liver, And then I just want you to look at these round things in the abdomen. Do you see how they come and go? Do you see how they're kind of there and then they're not there? They almost blink at you because they show up and then they go away. When you're ultrasounding something that's a tubular structure, it never goes away because you can follow it the entire time. But if you're ultrasounding something that's just round, like a lymph node, You see nothing, you see nothing, you see something small, you see something big, you see something small, and then you see nothing again. And that's what you're looking at here. All of these are intra-abdominal lymph nodes. And here's another example. Do you see these little spots that just come and go ever so subtly as you move your ultrasound from the patient's head down to their feet? You see these little spots that come and go. Those are all lymph nodes. This, you'll have to believe me, is a spleen. And I hope you can appreciate that there's a heterogeneity here. Do you guys see almost, there's there's almost these little shadows inside the spleen. Can you see how it looks a little heterogeneous? It doesn't all look the same. It's not nice and smooth. 
A normal spleen is nice and smooth, and this spleen has microsplenic abscesses. So those are two findings of something called the FASH exam. That is the focused assessment with sonography in HIV and tuberculosis. And it's incredibly helpful in the diagnosis of something called extrapulmonary tuberculosis in places where they don't necessarily have all the diagnostics that they would like to have. And these findings that that young man had gave him an odds ratio that suggested that he had extrapulmonary tuberculosis. So TB, as many of us know it, is generally a pulmonary disease. It's generally a disease that affects the lungs. But spread from the blood can actually affect many other organ systems other than the lungs and can have varied presentations. Extrapulmonary TB, again, tuberculosis outside of the lungs, can actually be smear negative. So even when people have the right diagnostics, their patients might be too immunocompromised to mount the response that they need to actually find it in their diagnostics. And ultrasound is a perfect test to make the diagnosis. So, of course, they were unable to obtain biopsies at the time for that young man, and the kiddo was started on TB medications and followed up in clinic. This was certainly a win. This was another case of a 40-year-old male that had come to the emergency department with flank pain, so pain on his left side, and no one could quite figure out why. He didn't have any infection in his urine. He had no skin findings. It was very odd, and the surgeons were planning to take him to the operating room to open his abdomen and try to find a reason for his left-sided belly pain. On morning rounds, they asked me to ultrasound him, and by that point, I had learned that if someone asks you to ultrasound someone, just do it, because you generally find pathology whether or not you're expecting it. And what you might see here is that this is a layer of muscle, He was 40, he was young, he was fit. This is muscle here. And then this is actually a layer of muscle down here. And then this bright white line that comes and goes as we apply pressure, that's inside his peritoneum. That's inside the abdominal cavity. I hope you guys appreciate that this layer here has different quality than this layer here. So again, up here is a muscle, but do you guys see how this layer is a little bit different? It's homogenous. When you apply pressure, it seems to behave like fluid. It's moving out of the way, right? This was another clip that I think is a little more subtle, but I hope that you can appreciate. Do you see some movement in there? So just above where my arrow is, do you see some movement of that tissue? Again, it kind of looks like fluid. It's behaving like fluid. It doesn't look like the other muscular layers. This young man had a condition called pyomyositis, which is a purulent or pus infection of the skeletal muscle. There's risk factors of immunocompromised trauma, intravenous drug use, another infection that seeds that area or malnutrition, and there's various stages of treatment. The surgeons had planned to take this man to the operating room looking for an etiology or a cause of his left-sided pain, But fortunately, because of this finding on ultrasound, we saved him the mortality of going to the operating room, which is, you know, not insignificant. He had an incision and drainage or an IND performed at the bedside and went home after his infection got better. Oh, this is another great one. I gave you the teaser about the liver ultrasound. So this was another gentleman on the surgical ward. He had come in with fever and abdominal pain with no other etiology. 
and one of the residents performed an ultrasound of his abdomen. So you've seen a lot of livers at this point. This is liver tissue. This is the spine. Do you guys appreciate how there's something different going on here? There's something on the left side of your screen that looks different than all of this liver tissue. Well, as the resident moved their ultrasound probe, they saw this. Do you see how that doesn't look quite as homogenous? That doesn't look quite as normal. It's not what you're used to seeing, and you've seen three or four livers by this time. That looks different. The resident continued to scan and saw this lesion in another part of the liver. And, and can you almost pretend that the material inside these brighter areas in the periphery almost looks like that pus that you saw in the pyomyositis case? So this gentleman had liver abscesses. This is the most common type of abscess to get of the viscera inside the abdomen. I have had one case in the United States here at UCSF many years ago. And generally, these are found on CT scans, not necessarily ultrasound, and they're treated with surgical drainage if necessary. But this man, he was able to get a percutaneous or through the skin drain, again saving him the mortality associated with going to the operating room, and he was started on antibiotics and did very well and was discharged without patient follow-up. There are so many cases I could go on and on. This is a very common case. Um, that if you're working in low-resource environments or global health settings, or both, uh, you'll probably see quite frequently. But this was a 24-year-old female who presented for evaluation of pelvic pain, abdominal pain, and vaginal bleeding. And she had an ultrasound showing this little squirm. I hope you can appreciate the movement of this fetus inside this tissue here. And what was important, I gave my residents a very clear protocol, because one of the tenets, obviously, of physicians is first, do no harm. And you don't want to give people something if you're not holding them to a high accountability and not making it rigorous and thorough and, and protocolized. And so this wonderful resident did exactly what I told them, which is start at the beginning on the uterus and then fan side to side. So this, at the beginning, is the uterus, and this is not inside the uterus. So again, at the very beginning of this clip, this is the uterus, and then the resident scans the patient's right lower quadrant, and here is the fetus at about 14 weeks of gestation in the right lower quadrant. So that is called an ectopic pregnancy, and an ectopic pregnancy is really a pregnancy that implants anywhere outside of this uterus lining. There are many risk factors for ectopic pregnancies, a disruption of the normal anatomy, including previous infection, surgery, congenital, or tumors. Most ectopic pregnancies occur in these fallopian tubes, but then you can get pregnancies everywhere else. This woman, based on the ultrasound findings, went to the OR. She again had a laparotomy with a removal of the adnexal ectopic pregnancy and did very well postoperatively. <sighs> this is one of my favorite cases just because it highlights that the mind cannot see what the eye does not know. 
So this was a four-year-old male that was brought into the family medicine ultrasound room because he had a tender belly. And when you have a tender belly in the center of trauma, again, you worry about some intra-abdominal injury. And so they wanted us to do a fast exam. And that's what we actually did on that first 17-year-old male who came in after the motorbike accident. A fast exam is focused assessment of sonog- with sonography in trauma. So this is looking in those traumatic patients for evidence of bleeding inside their abdomen. So this little guy came in with a little bit of pain in his belly. And they were concerned that he had peritonitis or inflammation of the peritoneum. So we did an ultrasound and we saw this. And again, some of you have only seen two kidney ultrasounds in your entire life, and I gave them both to you tonight. But this is that patient's spleen. We're in the left upper quadrant. And this is his diaphragm, and these are his little vertebra. And this is his left kidney. I know you don't know necessarily what normal is, but this looks a little different than other kidneys that you've seen thus far. This is a big, bright kidney. And we saw that kidney, and very gracefully, because obviously things around privacy and tender subjects, we recommended that the clinicians check an HIV test in that young man. He had a negative intra-abdominal fast for free fluid, but he went to the OR because he persisted to have a tender belly, which was negative, thankfully, for him. And they ordered an HIV test, and it was positive. So... HIV nephropathy is certainly something that I continue to teach the residents here because when you see those big, bright kidneys, you want it to trigger you testing the patient for HIV. There are so many other cases we could talk about. We have five minutes left, and I think I'll run through a few. So these are all cases that I've showed you thus far that are totally appropriate and within the scope of -of point-of-care ultrasound. It is incredibly common that in other environments, if you bring something that can be useful, people will ask you to look at things that you don't have any knowledge of how to look at. So for example, this was a 13-month-old male who was sent to the pediatrics clinic for evaluation of something called a preceptal cellulitis. There's two different infections that you can get in the eye. There's probably so many more. Ophthalmology would hound me. There's an infinite number of infections you can get in the eye. Two are preceptal and, and, and septal cellulitis, meaning preceptal meaning just an infection in front of kind of um, a plate in the, in the eyelid, and then septal being involvement of the globe itself. This kid had no red light reflex, which is when the pediatrician kind of shines a light in the little kiddo's eye and they can see red reflecting back. So we decided to do an ultrasound. This is what a normal ultrasound of the eyeball looks like. You actually, believe it or not, you take a probe and you put it on a closed eyelid with a bit of gel. And this is what you'll see. You'll see this beautiful orbit. And this is actually the shadow from the optic nerve in the back. This kiddo was 13 months old. He certainly wasn't old enough nor compliant enough to close his eye and safely do that. So I took the ultrasound probe, and we came from the side, because fortunately he had a lot of cartilage. So this image is actually his right eye. And I hope you can appreciate how different this is from the other side. So instead of being nice and anechoic or black-filled... This side shows that there's something heterogeneous and something echogenic within the globe itself. This was his other eye, and you can appreciate this mass-like substance in the back of his eye. 
So the pediatrics team was concerned about retinoblastoma and tried to coordinate treatment for him. The other case that I'll never forget, because this was literally the stretch on my comfort. Looking at eyes is something that we do in emergency medicine. We look for retinal detachments, posterior vitreous defect, etc. But this is something I had never done before, and I had to Google in the emergency department. This was a three-week-old, otherwise healthy male who was brought in by mother for what you know, is commonly called jerking or seizures or convulsions. He had had fever but had no improvement of mental status after several days of antibiotics with a bulging anterior fontanelle. So again, looking at pediatric brain tissue is something I had never done in my entire life and I'm happy not to do in my daily practice. This is looking at the brain. So through that soft part of a pediatric skull, you can actually look at the brain tissue. And this is brain matter. This is the falks. And these are two of the ventricles. See those slit-like structures? Well, I hope you can appreciate from that image how different these images are. So this was actually that child with the fever and no improvement in his mental status. And this was another pediatric patient that I took care of around the same time. So this is called ventriculomegaly or, or hydrocephalus, and you have swelling of those ventricles. And that was used as a prognostic tool for both the team and to aid their discussions with the mother. In conclusion, I feel like I've left you on a downer, and that was not my intention. Uh, these ultrasounds, I hope, illustrate just the potential use of point-of-care ultrasound in the diagnosis and management of patients. Certainly not intended to be a downer, but really they've helped aid a lot of treatment and care for these patients. Ultrasound is an incredibly valuable tool in any setting. It's an incredible, incredibly valuable tool when I'm working here at San Francisco General Hospital, and it's an even more helpful tool when I have no other resources at my disposal in other locations. I encourage you, and I'm sure I don't need to say this, but whatever you do, do it well. And if you have the opportunity to take your skills and talents elsewhere, you will have the opportunity to take all those skills and all those talents wherever you go. And then finally, I never would have had this opportunity, and my life wouldn't have been changed forever to go the direction of point of care ultrasound and global health if I hadn't said yes. So if you're interested in doing work in low-resource settings, please don't be afraid to say yes and really take a leap. These are the things that we briefly discussed today. Thank you very much for your attention and time. I'd be happy to take any questions. So the question is, um, but with point-of-care ultrasound, it's like I planted this question. With point-of-care ultrasound, really that hands-on, in-person element is invaluable. And the technology may be there, but isn't this a critical component? And the answer is yes. So I think, you know, when I speak about this remote training program, that is certainly the dream. Um, but that said, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think that POCUS education is incredibly important because of the hands-on. And I think teaching those small, subtle movements to obtain an adequate image is, is invaluable in obtaining the right image to make the correct assessment for patient care. And so ultrasound, at least point-of-care ultrasound, will always be in that way a little bit different. That's why I think Liberia probably has the foundation to pull off something like this. And also, you know, many people who work in global health are so motivated and inspired by the experience of being there. I think that a remote program 
<clears throat> you know, I'm just brainstorming and dreaming now of like Q six month hands on workshop. That would be amazing because clinicians who are involved in that kind of teaching who are based here would continue to be inspired and motivated and driven to dream up new possibilities from their experience there and also would provide that hands-on component. The other thing I will say, so that, I mean, that's one manifestation. You're absolutely correct. And with ultrasound and with telemedicine now, there's certainly all sorts of other platforms where you can kind of be FaceTiming with someone and their ultrasound image shows up at the bottom of your screen and you can tell them, you know, take your probe and angle it slightly more towards the bed or twist it counterclockwise and you can really give some meaningful feedback. But the hands-on portion... As anyone who's ever learned to skill, you know that once you pass that confidence threshold, you know there's no going back, but you have to really push someone over that confidence threshold before they're going to perform it alone. And so I do think you're right. I, I do think that POCUS is a bit special in that it requires a hands-on element. Great question. Well, great. If there's any other questions, you're welcome to come down and we can chat in person. But thank you again for your time. I really appreciated chatting with you tonight. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.